morning, church. Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Today we'll be reading from the book of Proverbs, chapter 4, verse 23, which can be located on page 305 in the blue Bibles located in your seat backs. If you do not have a Bible, please feel free to take one of these as a gift from us here at Northridge Life. Hear the word of the Lord. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Thus says God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this instruction from your word. We thank you, God, that you have called us to be guardians of our heart, Lord, that you have called us to guard the treasure that you have placed there through the gospel and to not let foreign contaminants and elements that would distract us from the truth invade And so, Lord, we know that just like every other work of our sanctification, this is something that requires an abundance of grace. So, Lord, we are a desperate people this morning, and we cry out for the grace that is necessary, that we might guard the treasure, that we might protect what you have invested in us, and so that we might bring glory to you, as the day approaches where we stand before you and present that treasure for your accounting. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, before I start, I just want to uh, acknowledge, uh, most of you know that Pastor David and Gabriel and I were at the G3 conference in Atlanta, the national conference, with 8,200 of our closest friends, and um, we had a, we had a great time. Um, it was, and, and we're, I'm saying this because you are the ones that sent us, and so we want to express our gratitude, our thankfulness. It was not, uh, it was not a waste. We we were just filled up. We're, I could not wait to preach this morning. Um, the Lord has done an incredible work through the ministry of G3. And uh, we, most of you know, we're a part of the G3 Church Network. If you're not familiar with G3, g3menmin.org. You can look it up and find out more about G3. It's a wonderful organization. And um, uh, the, it's a relatively new church network. And so most of the things that G3 does when they have large conferences like this, uh, they're based in Atlanta. So they tend to be in Atlanta or Washington, Washington D.C., and we received wonderful news at this conference that in May, I think it's the 9th through the 11th, they are having a conference in Dallas. And so we want to, right now, it's in May, and we want to encourage you, clear your schedules. We would love to take 20, 30, 50 people from our church to join with us at this conference. Um, it's probably not likely that we're going to, in any real Recent time, I'm going to have one that close, and um, you'll get to hear speakers like we got to hear. I think Stephen Lawson, Paul Washer are going to be there, and, and men like that that I'm sure you're familiar with. But thank you from the bottom of our hearts for sending us. We would really love for you to be able to go with us in May to the next one. So uh, make your plans to do that now. Also, want to mention that in your program, you probably saw that we were going to preach on the foreknowledge of God. Well, well, Gabriel was going to do that, and he had a uh, kind of 
of immediate, unforeseen family need that he needed to attend to and was not able to be here. He is going to preach that message. It's going to be in a couple of weeks. So instead, um, uh, I'm going to preach to you, and um, and I'm glad to do it. Like I said, it was the sovereignty of God because I was ready to preach after the conference. So um, in the book of Ezra... I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Old Testament book of Ezra. For whatever reason, it's not one that gets a lot of airtime in most churches. You know, I, you know, you don't generally hear people doing expository series through the book of Ezra. Um, and it, the book of Ezra tells how the Jews who had been exiled to Babylon because of their rebellion against God returned home. Ezra tells us of the temple's restoration uh, because Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, 70 years prior, had ransacked the temple, basically destroyed it, and so now they were returning. Now, Ezra himself was a priest who was allowed to return to Jerusalem to restore the priesthood, the sacrificial system, and to uh, rebuild the temple. He was given this permission by the Persian king, Artaxerxes. Now, the Persians conquered the Babylons. The, Babylons were, the Babylonians were the ones who took uh, the Jews into captivity. And the Persians conquered Babylon in 539 B.C. And, and after that happened, God moved on the hearts of the kings of that empire to allow the Jews to return to their homeland. Now, that's the historical setup. In chapter 8, Ezra plans this trip to travel back to Jerusalem with some priests to teach the statutes of God to the people who have been basically without a ministry for 70 years. And um, But when he's searching among the people, there are no Levites to be found. Now, you may not be familiar with that terminology. What is a Levite? Well, this mattered because the tribe of Levi in the Old Covenant Israel were the ones that God had appointed to work uh, or to the work of assisting the priesthood. They were the ones who who had charge of the ministry they weren't priests um, but they but they were the ones who who helped with the ministry of the temple now all of the priests every one of them came from the tribe of Levi but not all the Levites were priests only those who descended from Aaron Moses's brother could be priests stay with me this is going somewhere so Ezra searched all of the exiles in Babylon and he found 38 Levites along with 220 other servants to help with this work in the temple. Now, after spending time fasting and praying for God's favor and protection, they set off on this long journey, returning home after seven decades. Now, to fund this mission of restoration, a massive offering, huge offering of precious metals had been given to them by King Artaxerxes and others for the rebuilding of the temple. The silver that they received in this moment weighed 25 tons. And, and to boot, they had 3.75, 3 and 3 and 3 quarters tons of gold. Now, in today's dollars, I did a little you know, wizardry on my calculator. In today's dollars, the value of this offering that they're traveling with would be $241 million. Now, if you had sent me to Atlanta with a bag of $240 million and said, be very, very careful, I would have been very, very nervous. This was a major undertaking, and this is why they took the time to pray for God's protection See, this trip was around 550 miles from Babylon to Jerusalem. 
And they would travel on foot, or they would travel perhaps on camels, or on the backs of donkeys. And, and you can imagine through the desert wastelands that they were traveling, the, the, the opportunity for them to be accosted by bandits was enormous. And so God's protection of the people was absolutely vital for their success. Now they could have asked, the, the, the Persian government had already been so incredibly generous, they could have asked the Persian king for a military escort, but they declined to do so because of how, during their 70 years in captivity, they had boasted on the reputation of Israel's God. Now here's how Ezra puts it in Ezra eight twenty two. He says, For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So they chose to trust the power of their God. They knew that he protects those who do his will. And if we claim to follow God, we must trust everything to his goodness. We must insist on the operation and the benefit of his sovereignty. Amen? So when Ezra weighs out this offering to them, he chooses 12 of them, he weighs out the offering to them, and he divides it to them, and he gives them responsibility over their portion of it. And as they prepare to bring the offering home, he charges them like this. This is the charge he gives them. You are holy to the Lord. And the vessels, this silver and gold, are a freewill offering to the Lord. And, and, and it's holy. He says the vessels are holy. The silver, the gold is a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. And Ezra points out, listen to this, by virtue of their calling, the priests have been set apart by God. And he reminds them that they are holy to the Lord. That's what the word set, uh, the, the word holy means that they are set apart. They're, they're different. But if the free will offering is also holy, it's been, it, it, you know, if it's holy, then we have to assume that it's also been consecrated to God to be used for his purposes and to bring great glory to his great name in the rebuilding and restoring the majesty to the temple. And so Ezra gives them a solemn instruction in verse 29 of chapter 8. He says this, Guard them and keep them until you weigh them. This is the treasures is what he's talking about. Guard the treasures, keep the treasures, until you weigh the treasures before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel and in Jerusalem within the chambers of the house of the Lord. So he's saying... Take this to the house of the Lord, and when you're safely inside with the people responsible for the house of the Lord, then begin to give an accounting for it. The priests and the Levites are to guard this treasure even with their lives if necessary. And this is because both they and it are holy. They weren't simply to to go to Jerusalem to be spokesmen, to be mouthpieces For the nation. They weren't just to be its ceremonial religious leaders. They were to be guardians. And this is where you got to start paying close attention. They were to be guardians of what God had declared to be sacred. 
And Ezra tells them at the end of their long journey that there will be an accounting. And he tells them that the scales had better balance. What was entrusted to them in Babylon must travel safely to Jerusalem. If it's stolen by thieves, if it's pilfered by the priests themselves, they will be held accountable. And so in verse 30, we read this. So the priests and the Levi, the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. With steadfast vigilance, the priests and the Levites delivered the treasure to rebuild God's holy house in Jerusalem in their ancestral homeland. Now, as I read this passage in Ezra chapter 8, I see immediate and strong applications for the lives that you and I are presently living for Christ Jesus. And there are many ways that this passage in Ezra chapter 8 that you may have never thought about before concerns us as believers. First, Christians must understand the nature of priesthood. Priests do a few things by biblical definition. First, they represent God and they communicate His will to the people to whom they are sent. They're also mediators between God and those same people. So the question for today is, who are the priests in the church? Now, some of you might be guessing that it's guys like me, like Pastor David, that it's the pastors, it's the elders, it's the church leaders. But the problem with that is that the Apostle Peter, in his first letters, his first letter rather, said that all believers, now I don't do this very often, but I want everybody to repeat that, say all believers. Does that include you? The Apostle Peter says all believers comprise a royal priesthood. Now you guys don't seem too impressed by that. But that was one of the biggest deals of the Protestant Reformation. The discovery that God had not picked his favorite to issue out, his favorites to issue out of the Vatican with all kinds of power and, and unruly authority. But no. We rediscovered an amazing truth in the Reformation that all believers comprise a priesthood. Every single one of us. From the youngest and least educated to the wisest and smartest seminary professor, we are a holy, a royal priesthood. And the Bible says that that priesthood is called to show forth the praises of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. What are we doing? We're representing God to the people. We are mediating, not like Christ the great mediator, but we're mediating the light of God into which we've been called to the people. And so we represent God 
as this priesthood by cultural influence and by bold witness. The Bible says this is like being salt in the earth, giving it flavor, preserving it from corruption, like being light in the world, shining, illuminating the darkness, uh, the darkest of the dark. And we do this in our generation. And we do it by making, will, making known His will and by declaring the gospel. We mediate in much the same way. This is how the Bible speaks of our mediation under the great mediator. 2 Corinthians 5.20 It says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are not only a royal priesthood, we're the ambassador corps of the kingdom of God. God is making His appeal through us. What does that mean? We're mediating the message of God, this appealing message of God, we're mediating it for God. And so Paul says, we implore you, how? On behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. See, we live in a world, right smack in the middle of a world, that's alienated from God by sin. And in that world, we stand before God and fallen humanity, and we announce that they can be reconciled to Him through God. If you are here this morning, and you are away from God, dangling over hell itself, I am calling to you this morning, be reconciled to God. Come and find that He is loving and He will receive those who believe in His name and will save them and will reconcile Himself to them. He won't just uh, you know, punch your get-out-of-hell-free card. He will be a father to you. He will be a brother to you. He will be an advocate for you. Be reconciled to God. So if you're a believer, you must be a part of that royal priesthood. You can't just be a follower of a religion. You can't say, I am a Texan, a Republican, and a Christian. They are, that is not an equal category. Christianity demands everything. Christianity does not care about your opinions. Uh, you guys have all seen the meme by now, but the only thing left out of this book is your opinions. You can't just be a churchgoer. None of you are going to heaven on the coattails of someone else here. You are a representative an ambassador, a priest of the holy and almighty God mediating His message to the fallen world. And you've got to ask yourself this morning and get more serious than you ever have. Do you do that honorably? Do you do that faithfully? Do you do that with commitment? Do you do it with a serious heart? I'm compelled to ask that question because some claim to be servants of God but their lives and perhaps many of your lives 
are completely indistinguishable from the lost. I know that because you desire the same things, you act the same way, you respond to offensives and injuries the same way that this perishing world does. But the priests of the Old Testament were required to be different. They lived in a different place. They dressed in a different way. They even ate different food. They were required to stand apart from what was common. And God expects His new covenant priesthood of all believers to be holy as well. And how do we understand that practically? What does that look like practically? Well, here's a good diagnostic verse in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, we can pause right there. How many of your priesthood in the world is marked by an absolute prohibition in yourself of grumbling and disputing. You think I'm beating up on you as the man behind the pulpit? I am not. Because my my priesthood is constantly corrupted by grumbling and disputing. But God is calling me through this verse. And listen what the, the result of living apart from grumbling and disputing is, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. There needs to be distinguishing marks between those who are are blameless, innocent, children of God without blemish in the middle of this crooked world we all are forced to live in. So ask yourself, am I shining like a light or am I hiding in the shadows of the same darkness that the world is held hostage by? The standard for the priests of God is that you come out from among them and be separate. And this becomes vitally important when we discover that the salvation we have received from God when we were exiles in sin, the, 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 tr- the, the, what we've received, the salvation we've received, it is, in fact, a treasure. Much like the one that was entrusted to the priests and Levites in the time of Ezra, and yet this treasure, believe it or not, is infinitely more valuable. Can I prove that to you? That that treasure was worth $241 million. And Jesus says of your soul, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? The treasure that you have been given by Christ is infinitely more valuable than all the wealth of this world. The treasure that Paul is referring to here is the, 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 the knowledge of Christ. He says this in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It's the knowledge of Christ, His glory, His saving power. But this treasure is not carried in vaults. It's not committed to armies. We carry this treasure, Paul says, in jars 
of clay, bodies of flesh that are frail and they're faulty and they're often stumbling. And this isn't a bug in the system, it's a feature. This is so that we can demonstrate that our faith is not faith in what we or any other person can do or has done, but what God alone has already done. That's where our faith is. I'm not putting any faith or confidence in my performance. I'm afraid some some of you might see me in private sometime. And then you'd have a lot to realize that my treasure is not coming from my performance. I wonder if there's any fellow wounded suffering people in here whose treasure is not coming from their performance. We are but brittle clay pots, yet we carry a treasure of incalculable worth, showing the world that, as Ezra said, the hand of our God is good, is for good, it's for salvation on all who seek Him. It is God that saves us and keeps us to the end. And though this is true in the Bible, we are called to diligently guard the treasure from all ungodly assaults. Our heart, or our soul, or interchangeable terms, is the target for all of the fiery darts of the enemy. The heart when we talk about the, what is this thing called the heart, what is the, it's not this muscle that pumps blood. The heart is revealed in our thoughts, in our will, in our decisions, in our emotions. Satan would love to shatter the fragile clay by gaining a foothold in this, these areas. To gain a foothold in your thoughts. Did God really say? He wants to gain a foothold in your will to entice you to take of the fruit that is forbidden and eat it. And he wants us to, to put trust in our emotions so that we're, we're living by what we feel and what we desire. And, and he does this for one reason. He wants the treasure that is inside of us to be jeopardized. But remember, according to Paul, this treasure is the knowledge of Christ. What is in jeopardy is not your salvation if you're a believer. You cannot lose your salvation if you're a believer. But what you're, what you're, what's in jeopardy is your confidence and your faith that Jesus is strong. That Jesus is beautiful. And that Jesus is enough. That's what's under assault. Is Jesus strong? Is Jesus beautiful? Is Jesus enough? See, the devil will magnify your desires and your problems so that you forget the power of Jesus that is resident inside of you. He penetrates your heart so that that you believe that the desires of that flesh and that heart are more beautiful than Christ. He points to what the world offers so that you feel like something's lacking and you live in a world of discontent. And though you have been given more than the the wealth of the world, we feel like something's lacking, even though we have Jesus. And so our text today is from the Old Testament, Proverbs 4.23. Mike read it for us. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. The NIV uses different language. It says, above all else... 
Guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. An unguarded heart will certainly be targeted by your own flesh, by this fallen world, and by the devil, and it will be targeted for corruption. The priests in Ezra's time were, were living in a foreign land, and they were given a treasure, and they were tasked with delivering it safely to God's house in a faraway land. And their journey would be filled with peril. Enemies would show up that would try to take the treasure that was committed to their care. So they must keep their eyes on the horizon and keep their hands on their swords. The lazy or apathetic priest would be filled with shame if he arrived in Jerusalem with some or all of his treasure missing from the portion that was allotted to him. And you and I live in a world, if we are believers, that is foreign to us. This world is not our home. But we must travel through it on the way to our true and lasting homeland. And we've been tasked with carrying the priceless knowledge of Jesus Christ. And the growing sanctification that such knowledge empowers. And we've got to carry it all the way safe to our homeland where we'll cast it down at our Savior's feet in the last day of worship. But on our journey, we have enemies. I've already mentioned them. We have three in particular. They would all love to crack the jar of clay, to shatter it, and take or deplete what's been given to you. See, the world serves to distract us so that it may persuade us to exchange the inner eternal treasure so that we can acquire fading, temporal playthings. The flesh fills us with desires for pleasure, for stuff, for status, so that we'll pursue immediate gratification instead of waiting for the greater reward. And the devil constantly discourages us By telling you, come on, this journey is too hard. It's too long. He accuses us constantly, trying to convince us because of the sins we still have to set aside every day. That God's love could never be granted to us, to someone like us, because so that even if we complete this trip... Make it all the way to the heavenly Jerusalem. We'll be turned away by an angry, vengeful father so disappointed in us. But none of this is true. None of this is true. Do you hear me? Not a bit of that is true. God's treasure is far more valuable than any so-called wealth that your flesh can offer you. Anything that you forego in your flesh for the sake of your eternal inheritance is not lost. It's only invested. And the devil, he's just a liar, Jesus says, who cannot speak the truth. And so the assurance of that truth is that you can depend upon the love, the support, and the acceptance of your father to see you safely all the way home. So how does one Guard your heart. Many Christians worry only about their actions, what they do. 
with their hands. But every action that you have ever done began in your heart, whether good or bad. If Eve hadn't listened to the serpent's lies, if she hadn't embraced them in her heart, she never would have eaten of that fruit. Listen how Jesus puts this in Luke 6.43. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of, listen, the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure of his heart produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's inside of you will come out. If your if your heart is filled with praise and gratitude and a diligent pursuit of righteousness, it will come out. But if your heart is filled with greed and envy, selfishness, lust and murder, it will come out. We have to pay close attention to what we're allowing to be deposited in us. We live in a screen-dominated world. And most of you will take, especially those of you that attend this church, will take great um, pleasure in this confession, but I am not Amish. And I'm usually found with a phone nearby somewhere. But can any of us say that the majority of what we get on those screens is spiritually beneficial to us in any way? Never before have we had so many distracting amusements at our fingertips. Some of them are seemingly harmless, but some are incredibly time-wasting. There are also soul-killing poisons on our devices, like the pornography that is more easily obtained than at any other time in human history. Now, you're thinking, okay, throwing my iPhone away and I'll be, I will guard my heart. No, hold on. I wish guarding our hearts was as easy as disconnecting externally. But see, what usually happens, the bad stuff that usually comes out of me, not from outside of me, but what comes out of me is usually more damaging. Jesus said it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of a man. Because in his heart are all kinds of things. In my heart, there's worry, there's doubt, there's fear. There's unbelief. And those things wreak havoc on my heart because they fly in the face of God's truth. I sometimes tend to speak horrible words out of my mouth to other people. And sometimes I even direct those horrible words to myself. But if we're, if all we're attempting to do is have more healthy self-talk and eliminate negative people from our lives, that still wouldn't be enough. You can sit around and you can tell yourself, well, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. You can do that all day long. You can meditate. You can think happy thoughts in the lotus position all day long and you can still lose your treasure. What we need to guard our hearts is not just to disconnect externally or morally improve internally. What we need is the knowledge of Jesus. That is the treasure we're carrying. Now listen to what I'm saying. Find the implication in my words. In other words, the treasure that we are guarding is actually guarding us. 
We fortify the knowledge of Jesus by turning our ear to His Word and actually obeying what it says. This is what Moses meant when he told the Israelites in Deuteronomy 30, 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice, holding fast to Him, for He is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. Life has been set before us, not in the law of Moses, but in Christ. And yet, death through sin is always waiting to lure us with false promises and empty hopes. What will you choose? Choose life. You and your children will live loving and obeying God and holding fast to Him as He holds fast to you. Life is only found at the cross. The place of death is where life begins for us. And this means that as we die to ourselves, our desires, our agenda, this world, all the approval of others, that the treasure within us grows brighter. And Paul calls this treasure the life that is truly life. Interestingly, he says this when he's comparing spiritual treasure to worldly wealth in 1 Timothy 6. God's word builds up our defenses against the bandits of the world, the flesh, the devil, like nothing else can. David said this, many of you know this verse in Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart. Why? So that I might not sin against you. But the Bible is not only a defensive weapon, but an offensive one as well. Paul says that we're to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And just like the priests in Ezra's day, there will be an accounting for how we handled the Lord's treasure. Everybody grab your Bibles again and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. First Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 11 is where we're going to begin. And listen to these words. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, verse 12. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, that's the good stuff, or wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. I do not want to suffer loss on that day. Is the treasure within me Is it gold? Is it silver? Is it precious stones? Or is it wood, straw, grass clippings? What a great day of glory it will be to deliver this treasure to the eternal house of the Lord, eternal in the heavens. And there the knowledge of Christ 
that we've carried with us all these years will be transformed into eternal praise, eternal joy, eternal glory. Remember, the treasure that is in you is not, it cannot be, it's the exact opposite of your goodness. It's the exact opposite of your potential. The only thing, treasure that you have in this life is the saving and sanctifying knowledge of Christ who keeps us, who empowers us. There is no way for the Christian to guard his or her heart except through the cleansing power of God's word and the blood of Christ. We have to read God's word, but that is not enough. We have to study God's word, but that is not enough. We have to love God's word, and that is not enough. We have to live in God's word. As we neglect or abandon it, we will jeopardize our souls. Let's pray that God will send his wisdom conviction, and endurance that we may finish our journey through the world all the way to his eternal house in the heavens, in our true heavenly homeland, where we will dwell with him forever. Will you stand with me? Father, I ask that you would Awaken us, Lord, we are a slumbering people. Awaken us to the treasure that you have placed inside of us, Lord. Awaken us to the knowledge of God. Help us to remember the people all over the world that are dying in their sin right now because they have not been illuminated by the Holy Spirit and by gospel preaching with the knowledge of God the knowledge of Christ, what he has done, what he has accomplished. And Lord, help us to guard that treasure, to not dilute it with worldly philosophy, to not betray it with fleshly lusts. God, help us to cling to you and to treasure you and to proclaim you. Lord, help us to be drawn to your word. And give us light and life from your word. Lord, I pray that you would move on many in this congregation this morning to repent of the neglect of the treasure. I pray that you would move on many of this congregation to repent of not giving you a second thought, Jesus. And literally, right now, God, there is, Jonathan Edwards says, dangling over hell by nothing but a spider's web and they are kept safe only by the mere pleasure of God and so Lord I pray that they would awaken to their very precarious position Lord God that eternal destruction is imminently going to fall on their heads and they will go to a place where the There's weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth where the fire is not quenched and the worm never dies. And Lord, let them run to you, not to be just saved from that place, but Lord, to know you who are our life, our treasure, our all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We could have our communion assistants come forward, please, to help us.
serve the Lord's Supper. This is a time when we remember the day that the treasure was apportioned out to each of us. When Christ placed the treasure of the knowledge of Him, His saving work, His saving power into our hearts, into those jars of clay, that we would have Him and hold Him and know Him and be reconciled to Him. And so as you consider that reality, come and receive this bread that represents the brokenness of His body so that you would not be destroyed, the spilling of His blood so that you could be forgiven. Come and receive it. And if you're here and your life is in rebellion to God right now, you have not, you have not submitted to His Lordship, you have not called out to Him for His mercy and His grace, by all means do not approach this table The Bible places a very serious warning when it says that those who eat and drink unworthily eat and drink condemnation to themselves. And I do not want to contribute to your condemnation before a holy God. A God who's more holy, infinitely holy than you could ever imagine. But here's the thing. We say it every week and we'll continue to say it every week. We are praying for you. My heart is broken for you today. My heart is that you will have heard the voice of God, the voice of the Holy Spirit calling you to believe this morning, to put your faith in Christ, to abandon sin, to abandon your best thinking, because all it's going to get you is misery and hell. So come to Jesus today. And if you would love to do that, we would love to talk to you. Pastor David. Myself, we would love to visit with you after church. We will stop whatever else we're doing to talk to you. So please come and find us. But for now, remain in your seat. The rest of you, come receive these elements. Take them back to your seats, and we'll take them together in just a moment. Paul writes for us in the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. And now, let's give thanks for this incredible gift. Lord, thank you for the treasure that you have invested in us in the knowledge of Christ Thank you for the charge to carry it safely by the protection of your word, the sword of the spirit, the shield of faith, the covering of the Holy Spirit, that we will take it and we will lay it at your feet as our entry into the kingdom of God, that we are not there on our own, but we are there because of what Christ has placed inside of us. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.
If you would just place your hands in a receiving position, I will pronounce this benediction over you. It is the benediction of the people of Israel from Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.